0: I got into show business at the age of 20. Like, I got back into show business at the age of 26. And of course, I wasn't top of my field at all. But I was really, really determined. My motto was for many years, I can and I will watch me. And when someone says to me, you can't do that. I'm like, I can and I will watch me. Now, that sounds a bit maybe calculating or not, but it's not really like that. It's more that now that I have a knowledge of how magic works, I know that I can do things with the power of my mind and therefore I can do impossible things.
1: There's no simple explanation for this week's guest. I've struggled with how to do justice to her incredible journey. Romani Romani, a.k.a. Romani the Diva of Magic, is living evidence that when one sets her mind to something and takes action, anything is possible in time, for there is no overnight success where skill is required especially magic, where countless hours of training is required to make an attentive audience believe the magic they witness. For anyone struggling with life, unsure of direction, or feeling a pull to a place in life alien to where you are now, Romani's story will empower you to take action to create your own life arc. Romany was born and raised in England, was driven by a visceral early ambition to perform, it was pulled off course by a corporate life that led her to a breakdown in bulimia, which in turn opened her pathway to her stellar life in magic. Having performed for Queen Elizabeth at her 80th, won the prestigious Las Vegas World of Magic Award and wowed audiences around the world, Romney has recently written a book called Spun Into Gold to recount her life story and to impart her wisdom. However, her journey is anything less than plain sailing, as she describes in the podcast. Romney's story is defined by the patience and persistence to pursue her bigger dreams, but, as many of us find, ambitions change, leaving us to reassess our priorities. I hope you enjoy the vivacious, loquacious, and flamboyant Romany, Romany, Romany. Welcome to the Impossible Network Podcast.
0: Thank you so much. It's so exciting. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's great, great to be here. And I'm sitting here in Williamsburg in New York, and you are.
0: I'm in Cumbria, which is the north of England, just below Scotland, and I am sitting in a 16th century farmhouse.
1: <laughs> how delightful and how appropriate. Mm. Well. Before we get started, I really should give a big th- uh, shout out and thanks to Alan Digweed, Tweedy the Clown, for the recommendation that we interview you next. It's taken a few weeks, but here we are. So um, thank you, Tweedy. I've said this to a guest that I interviewed this week as well, that what I love about the serendipity of relying on guest recommendations is... Whoever we interview, they seem to be perfectly cast for the podcast. And I heard you say that you have a a sign on a mirror that you use, which says, let us make our fairy tale today. And that focuses you on making sure that there's no impossibility. And as a magician, it's really all about making the impossible possible so I think that was really interesting and it feels like it's a a perfect you're a perfect subject matter for this podcast so I'm really looking forward to the interview so let's learn a little bit more about you and your backstory and let's start we always start with upbringing before we get into discussing your life journey in magic in your case so from what I've read that you were born in London and I read that your parents always encouraged you to really go down a route of performance and supported you in elocution lessons in in dance and in st- stagecraft, mm. what led you at that early age to focus in on performance and when and when did they just recognize it, or did you say to them, "This mm. is what I want to do with my life
0: i mean i was I was taken to ballet lessons at the age of. T- i think so the back story was that my parents were born in the war my parents were born in 1939 mm-hmm. and so the early years of the war my mother was evacuated you know so they didn't have it they had a terrible education because they were sent all over the place and they were quite put they were working class in london mm-hmm. so they both and my mother especially didn't have anything you know they didn't have any piano lessons or and so my mother wanted to give me everything that she didn't have and Why she took me to ballet lessons, I don't know. But I obviously showed an interest in that sort of thing very, very early on. And even as a five-year-old child, I would be dancing everywhere. I was absolutely stage struck. And I'd be dancing along behind her in the supermarket. And (laughs) I absolutely remember that, you know, in the days when women would go to the supermarket every day, the local one, she would lock up the house and I would dance on the doorstep in, you know, the London, London boroughs in the middle of nowhere, expecting a talent scout to pass by and make me a star <laughs> in the films. But so literally, and, and I remember, you know, in the, in the living rooms when, the, when night falls, and so you can see, they're like mirrors, you know, the mm-hmm. windows like mirrors. And I would dance there thinking someone will pass by and make me a star. And every weekend I'd be watching all these MGM dancing films. I was absolutely stage struck, And all I wanted to be was Judy Garland.
1: Well okay, we're going to talk on about why you didn't quite go on that route and uh, you went in a slightly different direction. But first of all, siblings.
0: Right. I've got a brother so different, has no interest in show business at all. He's a very successful builder. You know, hmm. and 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 actually he would tease me, Oh, not as older brothers do, and he'd say, "Romany he lost in show business." And also, when I did give up my corporate job to go into show business and wasn't making any money at all, uh-huh. he would say, what's your five-year plan? And if you're not making any more money in five years, what are you going to do?
2: Uh-huh.
0: To which case, I would angrily answer, well, I'm going to work harder then, you know. And and he still thinks I'm completely nuts. He, you know, so, so, and I do think that's, na- is that nature, not nurture? I absolutely believe in that. So we brought up the same, totally different. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh-huh. Okay, so that support, they must have been quite bemused and amused by your dancing performances as you sort of followed your mother around and performing in front of the the living room window. Did that, that sense of support, were you aware of it at the time or were you sort of very conscious that they were guiding you?
0: Yeah, so my mother was absolutely 100% behind me. You know, my father would pay for everything. You know, they had a very old-fashioned sort of thing where he worked and she was a housewife Mm -hmm. and and they'd pay for everything. And But also in the days before, well, we had a photocopier, but she would literally um, write out the scripts. I was in the Amateur Operatic Society and auditioning, and she'd test me, and they was so encouraging, so Mm -hmm. supportive.
1: And so she, she was a housewife, but your father... What was his profession? Very,
0: you know, I don't think he was ordinary because he really believed in magical things too. But because they were working class and that, you know, they both didn't go to university, and so he had he would flip houses and do all manner of things. But he was extraordinary, and also he was a really good dancer too, and uh. very charismatic. So that he was very funny and very charismatic, and. You know, I, I look at him and think, you know, if he'd been on the stage, he would have been really good, but he, he had no interest in that.
1: So it's in the gene pool then. Mm. Yeah. really. And familiar. my
0: grandmother was also a very good dancer. And again, very poor, but she would she would dress up in beautiful clothes that she would make herself and, and have jewellery and things. were just cheap tat, but she was very glamorous. And she would always say to me, Romani, learn languages and travel, you know. And and also I remember in in the when at the holiday camp, that and this is in the book too that she she stole the roses. She she went into the greenhouse and literally stole the roses and dressed me up as a hula hula girl and I won the <laughs> a dress competition. And the, the the guy said, "And where did you get those roses from?" You know?
1: <laughs> Suspiciously. So, so I was where,
0: very well supported.
1: What about your your peer group? Were there other children at school that just thought you were slightly clearly charismatic but uh, misguided that you think you were going to end up as a Judy Garland starlet?
0: I don't know anyone at school really noticed and it's funny there was there was one girl at school whose mother had a stage school and I was really jealous of her because she was really really stage school like and I know that she went to auditions and all that but it's funny because I was on the cruise ship doing my own show finally and her mother was there and came to see my show. And I said, oh, what happened to your daughter? And she said, oh, no, she didn't. She didn't do it. She didn't become a professional entertainer. And I, but I was like, right, <laughs> did it.
1: It's funny. I went I, find, I went to many schools, but the final school I ended up in was in a place called Carnoustie in the east coast of Scotland. And there was a guy in the year below me who was in the drama society, always leading the school plays. And you just went, he's definitely going to go on and do something, this guy. His name was Alan Cumming. So Alan oh. Cumming. Yeah, yeah Alan yeah. Cummings. Yeah, the actor, right. yeah. So it's interesting that there are people It's just in their, it's their destiny. It's I
0: think, I sort of think it's, it is in their destiny and it's like Mozart. I'm not saying I'm on Mozart, but I think, I think we've got pre-lives and we arrive ready to do our destiny. I think we do. I think we have to follow our destiny and if uh, we don't, it won't make us happy.
1: Yeah, I had a, a very interesting conversation with two young Scotch guys they are both started a podcast in Scotland around their disillusionment over the way that the promises they were made as a Gen Z. Expecting life they would go into after university would be something very different and they just feel let down and all their peers feel the same way. So they're, they're interviewing people and they want to interview me next week. We were doing a pre-interview chat and they were asking about purpose. And, you know, should you pursue your life purpose? And if you'd asked me at age 22 what my purpose, or 21, what my purpose in life was, it certainly wouldn't be sitting, podcasting, building a a network and connecting people together as a superpower to uh, help people create new opportunities through serendipitous connections. But I do think that's where I've ended up. It's a hard one. I think you either have an innate sense at a young age where you're Life arc is going to go up, and other times it only emerges through your life arc.
0: I think you really have to listen. And I say that because I'm now in a different life change. And and I'm reading this book at the moment that I'm going to recommend to you, but it's called The Wisdom of Florence Scoville Shin. And right, and written in 1925. Wow. Okay. Before Abraham Hicks, before all of this, right? And she's talking about following your hunches. Uh And she says, when you follow your hunch and you listen, the hunch is the way the divine works. She's very sort of biblical, but it's, it's, and I absolutely believe in this. And right now I'm literally sitting in the garden, not working. I'm not being a magician with a broken shoulder, listening to where I'm meant to be going next. Mm. And... And I listened to where I was meant to be going next about two months ago and I didn't pay attention and I didn't act on it. And I'm telling you now, I think I'm very happy with my broken shoulder because I think it is making me listen and do what I need to do next. And this actually is a theme that went all the way through my book um, because I I think in my book, I say the angels, they give you warnings or they give you suggestions. And then, and then they will push you. You know that then, literally, then you have an accident or something to push you in the direct yeah. direction. And that happened many times in my life. And if I didn't listen, then something would happen to
1: force me to do something. That's interesting. Have you read the book by Mo Gaudet called "Solve for Happy"?
0: No, was it called "Solve
1: <coughs> Solve for Happy"? Solve for as happy. in no. problem solver? Right. It's, it's it's a brilliant book, and he's mm. wonderful. He was an ex head of engineering at Google, Google X, and he left and he now does motivational speaking. And he had a very tragic moment in his life that set him on a different direction. In fact, I heard him on an interview talk about this. It was with that great podcast called How to Fail. But he talked about how in the morning he tries to spend 45 minutes just with pen and paper in hand and letting his mind wonder right. and and just listening to whatever thoughts come into his head and he said for the first 15-20 minutes it's obvious the things you start to think about things that are on your mind and then it starts to flow
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I've done it a few times and it's extraordinary where it takes you and I think what you're talking about is very much in tune mm. with that it's your you're opening your mind to whatever quantum field or whatever you call it angels or or the connective tissue of this this quantum connection that we all have in the universe i i've read a book recently called the divine matrix and it is a matrix we're all connected Mm -hmm. and you're listening to that Mm -hmm. you're hearing these signals Mm -hmm. so i I think it is really powerful and too much too often we're tapped into our conscious selves rather than our subconscious selves so it's very interesting
0: talking about in the artist's way you've done the artist's way you know by julia cameron you no. heard of that? no So this was written. Oh, I don't. Wait, I, I did it in my twenties. And Julia Cameron the Artist's Way is very famous. there's basically it's a it's a, a twelve step program for recovering artists. Uh-huh. You no, know? and and so what she gets everyone to do is to write longhand on paper with a pen, three pages. And what happens with that? As you say, first of all, you go. Oh, I must remember to put the bins out. I must hang up my washing. All the rubbish that you got in Mm. your brain and then after about 15 minutes then you're like oh I really want to be an actress Eh? (laughs) hey um and so so then things come out but you have to get rid of the the, the everyday boring stuff and and really listen really listen and then of course you have to act on it
2: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) and then what happens is then you take one small step then another one then another one then another one and then and then when you look back and say well how did i become this
2: mm-hmm.
0: you look at you took a step and you listened and you took a step and you listened and you took a step and and i think this is really important and that and i think this is how magic works this is what i think how magic works but i just um did a book club the other day where people read my book and asked me questions and one woman was very skeptical and she said you believe in intuition and you believe in magical things happening and you believe in the universe helping you. She said, I I don't, she said, I think you made it happen. And it's like, and I said, fine, but you are limited if you believe that, because you're not allowing what I call the invisible helpers to help you. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And if you do allow them, then all manner of marvelous things will happen. (laughs) So why not? Why not open your mind and just experiment and see if things happen?
1: am going to come back to this point further in the interview, but let's just go back to that those early years. Was there anything defining in your childhood, any memory that relates to who you are, what you do today?
0: Mm, I mean, or, yes. Or I mean, was
1: it just a sort of a linear progression of dancing, well, performing?
0: I just adored being on stage and 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 this is like crazy I mean you know I was in a holiday camp talent competition and because I was learning all this poetry and could recite it I recited this poem and I remember the silence like when you when you're on point and doing something good to an audience there's this amazing silence where you can hear the silence and I felt that and experienced that at 12 I think, and that was what I was in love with
2: mm-hmm.
0: so i so I knew that that which i you know I get incredible stage fright and and many things associated with my profession I can't bear at all, but when I'm on stage and there's this lovely flow of love and understanding with the audience, then that is so precious, and I fell in love with that young. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, were you always lost in your own imagination and curiosity?
0: Yes. I was re- a reader, so I loved reading and I read all the time. And I was really into, interested in magic. Yeah, And I don't mean like stage magic. I mean like Eenie Blight and the Faraway Tree with mm-hmm. and, and Ursula K. Le Guin, wizards and witches and fairies and all these things. So I was very much in my own world and in the world of show business and in my own world. Mm-hmm and And to me, the most important thing in life was my dancing lessons and the amateur operatic and being on stage that was like the most important thing and, and I, I would get up early before school you know at six o 'clock in the morning to practice dancing and to to do the exercises for dancing and to and I loved Latin and stuff, mm-hmm. and I would learn poetry. And I would learn huge chunks of poetry, which I can still remember now. So I was very much in this theatrical world.
1: You must have been a joy to your English teacher.
0: Yeah, I loved my English teacher. I I had a crush on all my English teachers. Yeah.
1: So what was life and school like for the young Romani?
0: Yeah, I loved school. I loved learning things and I seemed to have a really good memory and... And and my personality is I really like winning, and I really like being top of things. And if I can't do so- something, I don't like doing it. So, for oh, example, yeah. we learnt fencing. I was in girls' school and we learnt fencing, and I was really really good until we had a fencing competition, and then I got beaten, and then I gave up fencing. Mm. Now I'm not saying this is a good thing to be. <laughs> um, but if so I why
1: didn't why didn't that make you double down and go? I'm going to win the next one.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it, because I'm not. Mm. No, that's a good that's a good question.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because if that being the case if you'd gone on stage at 12 and that silence hadn't been there, would that have meant that you would have walked away that you're it would have destroyed your self belief or was it you just the the fact that the fencing you hated losing and therefore you didn't think I I'm, I'm okay, intrigued sir it because it's about fencing enough. Yeah. There wasn't the passion there. I
0: know that when I got into show business and I got into show business at the age of 20, like I got back into show business at the age of 26. And of course I wasn't top of my field at all, but I was really, really determined. My motto was for many years, I can and I will watch me. And when someone says to me, you can't do that. I'm like, I can and I will watch me. Now, that sounds a bit maybe calculating or not, but it's not really like that. It's more that now that I have a knowledge of how magic works, I know that I can do things with the power of my mind and therefore I can do impossible things. And so can everyone else, not, not just me, but everyone else. can. Like my job as a magician is to teach you that you are the magician of your own life.
1: That's what you should have told that woman.
0: What woman?
1: The woman at the book club that said you, <laughs> <laughs> that, that it's you that's doing it. and Yeah,
0: right. You know what? What we really see these days more than ever is when people have an opinion, they often have a very closed mind, and 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 you cannot get people to change their minds.
1: Yeah, don't you're, don't you're don't we know it. Mm. Okay, so. I read that you said to your headmistress at your girls' school, (laughs) when (laughs) asked about what you want to do when you grow up, that you wanted to be a Moulin Rouge feather-clad showgirl. Clearly affirmations work, but (laughs) what was her reaction and what was the school's reaction, the thinking, what have we got on our hands here?
0: Exactly. Yeah, she just, this is a nun, I was at a common school and she just gave me a funny look. You know, but but what you have to imagine that i was i was being indoctrinated like you know my mother and i would watch maybe three films on a saturday you know with judy garland and gene kelly and fred astaire and you know and i was absolutely in this world and and really in this world where men were like Harry Grant and Gene Kelly, and, and this, and, and my romantic life, I had to really unlearn that men wouldn't show up on my doorstep <laughs> with flowers and <laughs> you know, do the right thing. And I was very disappointed in, in my teenage years and twenties, but that ma- men weren't like they were in the Doris Day films. You know, they were <laughs> I was very disappointed. And it's still not actually. <laughs> There's
1: a rom-com waiting to be written. There, I think. <laughs>
0: you know films are not real life and and in Uh real life you learn that don't you
1: yeah yeah it works both ways now that you've explained that you loved poetry and you loved english i was somewhat intrigued when i learned that you actually studied english and italian literature at university why you didn't go down the drama and acting route
0: well um I was head girl at my school and I was very idealistic. So I wanted to be the best head girl ever. And so my the school was ridiculous and it, it wanted me to um, organise parents' evenings and actually unlock the cloakrooms at three o'clock and, uh, in the morning. And I and so I organised talent shows and we raised money for the dogs for the blind. And it meant that I didn't go to many of my lessons. And my maths teacher really didn't like that. And I remember she <laughs> predicted me an E which would have meant that I wouldn't go to any universities. So I was rejected by all universities and um, certainly couldn't get into drama. And it was only, I only got to do Italian because of clearing, because no one wanted to do Italian. Mm. <laughs> so it was very easy to get in. And that was how it happened. Right. But, you know, I think that things happen for a reason. But when I went to university, I went along to the drama society and realized very quickly that there was 160 people in the drama society. Only 18 people got a part every year. And they looked to me as if they were the friends of the producer, which mm. is an indictment of the acting profession, really. And I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. So that sent me to the circus society where I learned to juggle, which set me off, which is how I met Tweedy. I mean, I didn't meet him in the circus society, but I learned to juggle. I ended up marrying a juggler. And that took me into the world that I'm now in.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. Uh, actually, before we... Talk about the, the direction you went after that. Were there any sort of mentors or influence, influential individuals that you encountered during that period that really were supportive and mm. pivotal in your Absolutely. Direction? So they
0: were my, my teachers. So Miss everyone was called Miss Wilson or Miss Muriel or whatever. So Miss Wilson was the, the lady I went to for elocution lessons. She was deeply versed in literature. And a love of performance and that, and I went to see her every Friday, and you know, again, I think that's the first chapter of the book that she she's. She, I never saw her standing; she sat in this chair with books stuffed around her, and books everywhere, in a tiny downstairs flat that reeks of cat food, and and I loved her, and I went twice a week to her, and she got me to learn Milton and Shakespeare. And and she taught me how you know how to learn poetry. She gave me a love of poetry, and then Miss Muriel was my dancing teacher, who I loved beyond anything. And I went to her lessons four times a week, and 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 they, I, I don't, they didn't say you have talent, but they they gave me the idea that I had some talent in this. And I think they loved, you know, they there was this love going on. I adored them. They really supported me. And yes, my parents paid for lessons, but it wouldn't have been that much. Mm-hmm. And so these were the two women that really shaped my life.
1: Mm. And this was in London.
0: Um yeah yeah. Which part? Well, just actually, this was going out to Essex. So I was born in London, and then I grew up in, in Essex. But these days, well, I never mentioned was Essex. No. <laughs> Everyone just as insurance girl, which I, I am, but I learned uh. to disown that in the whenever it came out was that in the nineteen nineties. Uh. So I spent most of my childhood reciting poetry and being absolutely in this idealistic world of loving literature. And even at university, I loved it. But what 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 took me off the rails mm-hmm. and which absolutely shaped my life and is shaping my life now with the book. Is that at the age of 15, I got the part of Louise in Rogers and Hammerstein's Carousel. It was the biggest deal in my life. I had a solo ballet in the local professional theatre. And because I wanted to be thin for this ballet, and I wasn't, I was just, you know, I wanted to be thinner than I was. Uh, I stopped eating at the age of uh, 15, which, you know, is not good. And when I was in that ballet, I was thin. But what what happened was, the moment I came out and started eating again, I put on weight. I put on maybe two, which is what about twenty eight pounds. And so by the age, at the age of seventeen, I was two stone overweight. Wow. Which meant that I could not carry on dancing. When I looked at myself in the mirror, I I it was I hated what I saw. I had bosoms, which is mm-hmm. not good for dancing. And I did, it was the age of Jane Fonda. I had a Jane Fonda diary. I wrote down everything I ate. I went on every single diet, the lettuce diet, the grapefruit diet, and the every diet, nothing worked. Mm -hmm. And it blighted my my life, you know. When I look back at those years and that poor 17-year-old who had this extra weight and Mm -hmm. literally every night would pray to God to be thin and wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I had to give up the joy and the passion of my life. And my poor mother could only watch. She must have been
1: distraught. Absolutely. Knowing.
0: But then what got worse was that then I read a magazine article on bulimia. Uh-huh. And, and I read that you could eat whatever you wanted and throw it up and get thin. And I thought at the time, fantastic. And I went down that road. So wow. there I was a head girl of my um, convent school standing up in front of the whole school reciting poetry and doing the notices and organizing the talent shows and probably every lunchtime with my head down the toilet it was wow. a horrendous time and and because of that i gave up dancing i gave up everything and i went to university mm-hmm. but at university it got worse and i just spent my life doing sport like three aerobic classes a day and binging and throwing up all night it, I, when my, my mother, just
1: just to control your weight.
0: Yeah, and it wow. didn't control my weight. It got yeah, worse. Of course.
1: Yeah, of course. It was.
0: And and so it was a very very unhappy time. Which I'm now just to let everyone know. I'm very very healthy now. I don't have that anymore, which is fantastic. But when I look back on that time, it was awful. Uh-huh. You know, and and this is what now drives my passion to help young people who are involved in that now because. I can't bear it. You know, mm-hmm. I just can't bear the fact that anyone else would suffer with that these days.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that explains then why you went into corporate. Yeah, uh, that's why it Corporate, why I corporate life. With
0: British Telecom selling data systems.
1: <laughs> yeah. When well. you should have been going on a, a marvellous journey to stage yeah. and screen. Yeah. Wow. Because,
0: you know, show business... Still, I think probably even more so. If you look at all the most famous actresses, mm-hmm. you know, you need to be, there's very few who are curvaceous who make mm-hmm. it big. And even in, in theatre, in musicals, you know. Oh, there, very-
1: no, it is changing a bit. I mean, I interviewed Sharon Feldstein, who's Beanie Feldstein's mum. And I don't know if you saw Beanie, it's Jonah Hill's sister. Mm-hmm. She's definitely wouldn't fall into that category. Yeah, it doesn't even deter- define the types of roles that she's cast in. So I think it is changing slowly. Sure. I th- if you
0: want to be a dancer, you you know you Maybe, absolutely yeah. have to have the right body shape. And I get it, you know, I get that. But it's well, it's a shame. You know, not a... it's a shame. I understand that there's an an aesthetic form.
2: But yeah.
0: it's it's but also I I really think that it, with Instagram and you know basically I. I I know so many fathers these days. Yeah. I, I come across them because of my book, which I talk openly about the bulimia. And I talk to, like, you know, my van was getting fixed. And mm-hmm. the van guy said, "And what's your book about? And I, the way he said it, I just thought, hmm. And I said openly what it was about. And he said, okay. He said, I've got a teenage daughter who's really troubled by this. And that was that guy. And then I was walking my dog with another friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, I've got to go to school soon because my 13-year-old has stopped eating. And I'm
2: like, you know,
0: this, wow yeah it's it's a, it's, it's a thing <laughs> wow
1: yeah okay so <clears throat> there you are in british telecom you're four years in but you mm. you decide and got, having gone through all this let's say physical and mental trauma mm. with bulimia i believe that you something triggered you at 26 to say enough's enough mm. and go take this Let's say right turn direction into magic. Wh- where yeah. did that co- first of all? Where did that come from? And a lot of people, when they're in that sort of that, let's say in that not rut but in that rhythm of corporate life, might have a dream and a goal, an ambition, but just they do nothing about it, mm. and they sustain that life. What what was it that triggered your rapid change?
0: Well, it was a, a breakdown. It was like, you know, I'd like to say, oh, well, I gave up the corporate job and followed my dream. No, I was forced to. So so you imagine it was the um, early 90s with my corporate company car, a very good salary. And I'm doing well because I I was in sales and I like talking to people and and I was just earning a lot of money. But I went to a nightclub. I went to a salsa nightclub in London and I saw this dancing and I was like, I was just struck by it. And the fact that there was people of all different sizes and shapes and suddenly he was a dance that he didn't have any thin to do. And I got absolutely obsessed. So I dyed my hair black. I started wearing black clothes. I went every night. And I found myself a Colombian chap. He said, would you want to dance with me? And we gonna do competitions. And so we did. I got obsessed by this and we won the 1992 London Salsa Championships. And and I started doing shows with him on ships going up and down the Thames, because I I, I was all, I'd always been a good dancer, I, you know I, I had a talent for dancing, so suddenly I was dancing every night and in love with this. I loved dancing, but of course you need to be slim. You don't have to be slim to dance salsa, but mm-hmm. I was now doing shows, and so I wanted I wanted to be slim and. and I just had this thing in my head. I wanted to be slim. So that meant that I'd get up early before work. I'd, I had a personal trainer. I trained with him. I then worked out in the gym. I then went to do my high stressful job. And then I did more exercise and then I danced all night. And no one mm. told me that I had to sleep. So basically, oh. and I was still bulimic. So no wonder bulimia is not good for you. (laughs) It's not good for your body. I was not sleeping. I was over exercising and had a very, very stressful job. What happened finally was I got promoted. Um, I was on a fast track management thing. I got promoted to fill the shoes of someone who died from a heart attack. (laughs) So, and being a a competitive person, I wanted to to show that I was good at this. Mm -hmm. It was a thankless task. I was... So I worked really hard. I worked really hard all day. I danced really hard all night. I was not eating. I was throwing up. And guess what? I went to Paris to do a deal. And I was in this hotel. And I went to open the door. And I couldn't open the door. Like my brain couldn't work out how to open a door. The door. There wasn't a problem with the door. There was a problem with me. And then I, I remember sitting down at the dressing table and looking in the mirror. And I didn't. I couldn't recognize myself. Obviously I was having a mental breakdown and I was like, whoa.
2: Mm.
0: And I thought, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll do a really good presentation to the boss about this meeting that I've just been to. And then I'll have a holiday. I asked the boss for three weeks holiday and I never went back. Mm. And the reason why I never went back was that all the anxiety that i had been keeping at bay was in the moment I went to stay with my parents went nuts. And I had anxiety running up and down my arms. I couldn't talk to anyone. I couldn't use the telephone. I couldn't leave the house. I had a breakdown. I didn't know wow. I was having a breakdown, but I had a breakdown. And basically, I, had, I was in my childhood room and I sat on the end of the bed in my childhood room with the fairy wallpaper, and looking at the closed door,
2: mm-hmm.
0: going, Oh, <laughs> and realizing that my world had shrunk to my childhood bedroom and I couldn't leave. And I was like in a cage and I was like, wow and i sat there for months listening mm-hmm. and i was like the reason i am in this tiny cage is that i did not follow my heart mm-hmm. what my heart said at the age of five is be a performer be on stage and i didn't follow that and i you know and so i said to myself like right. I'm now going to be a performer no matter what it takes, how long it takes, what it costs. And more than that, I'm not interested in anyone else's opinion
2: mm.
0: at all. And it was so clear. And I was angry. I was furious. And so then I said, I'm going to be a juggler. I'd learnt to juggle. I'm going to be a juggler. And my parents went, what?
1: They were, they're, they're going,
0: <laughs> What?
1: And Corporate
0: then I got my BT, trade union yeah. rep. My trade union rep. I said, I'm going to be a juggler. And he said, you can't make any money juggling. And I, and I said, I don't care. I'm going to, you know. And, and, and I always say now, in, I, you know, I do speaking gigs. And I say that when you decide and you are really clear,
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's when the universe, the world changes. Yeah. And it will then bring you things to help you on your path. Because it was three weeks after I made that decision that someone said, Hey, there's this magic evening class. Why don't you come to this magic evening class? And I went to that first evening class and went, This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a magician.
1: Mm-hmm. That was it. Mm. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I also read that at uh, a certain age, you did by Deadpool change your name. Was mm-hmm. that tied into this whole yeah. t- breakdown?
0: Um, Not first of all, when I was in London, I lived in Camden, and I discovered Circus Space. Uh-huh. Circus Space was the beginning of a place which is now the National Centre for Circus Arts, a big, you know, big huge building. But mm-hmm. at the time when I went there, it was a, a run a rundown, ramshackle old building that a couple of people had where? painted stripy and made a cafe, and it was a generating station. So, so where
1: I lived in Primrose Hill for quite a few years. So where in Camden is it?
0: This is, well, now it's in Old Old Street.
1: Ah, right. But it
0: was off the Caledonian Road.
1: Ah, right, up that way. Right, okay.
0: And so I went there after work. Mm. And I always felt absolutely uncool because I went there in my business outfit, you know, like high heels, briefcase, (laughs) business suit. And when I got there, everyone had tie-dye and dreadlocks and... (laughs) It was before piercings, really, but, you know, and I'd get changed. And that's where I learned to stilt walk and I learned mm-hmm. to whip crack and I did juggling courses. Anyway, on my first holiday from British Telecom, I did a three week clown course. And the people there sat around in a circle and we were asked our names and everyone was called Tweedy or Rainbow. <laughs> or And and I had a normal name and, and, I like, and I'd always not felt that my name was my name mm-hmm. and so I went back to my parents and said I need a proper name what's my name and I was 22 and my father said your name is Romany mm-hmm. and immediately I thought yes a traveler a gypsy it was like yes and I went to BT and said I'm, my name is now Romany <laughs> <And I went, laughs> okay, okay and I always really respected BT for that they didn't go mm-hmm. what they went okay. now my official name is Romany Romany. Yeah. Um, and the second part of my name was when I was 30 and I went to Fintorm, which is a spiritual... The community,
1: community. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And I went to, to see Caroline Mace,
1: uh-huh.
0: who, who I'm, who, who's who been a huge teacher for me. I'm doing one of her courses now called The Great Transformation. You know, the best-selling author, best-selling author of
2: mm-hmm.
0: Sacred Contracts and, and Why People Don't Heal and How They Can... And she was talking about tribes and how we have what our tribe expects of us. For example, if your husband dies, Mm -hmm. um, you're expected to grieve for maybe a year or two years. And after that, maybe you might meet someone else. But if you met someone after a week and then married him, that would be against the rules of your tribe. And that really resonated with me. I went to find healing for bulimia. And what she talked about was tribes. And I was like, yes. And for me, I come from now a middle-class tribe, white, English, middle-class tribe that expects you to have a proper job and a mortgage Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and get married and have children, maybe. And I was like, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want any rules. And so on my 30th birthday, I went to see a a solicitor and and changed my name to Romany. And when I walked home, I was like, my rules, my life, My rules. Uh, you know, you can tell me, I will only take your advice if I have great respect for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, my friend just came to stay. And she was saying that she didn't like the colour of my walls. And it's like, well, I actually don't have much respect for your your, your decor. <laughs> so I'm not taking any notice. But if, if you maybe, ha- you know, like, for example, I will pay a lot of money for a director that I respect. hmm but if someone just comes to me and says, oh, why don't you do that in your show? I'm like, well, <laughs> what authority do you have?
1: Yeah. OK, so that sort of a name change, because uh, I've heard you say that you also in your you have this persona change from Romani Romani to when you're actually on stage to Romani the diva.
0: Mm. Romani Diva Magic. A yeah, totally different person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, for example, I, right now, as you can see, I'm not wearing any makeup. I haven't brushed my hair for a week, but that's because I've got a broken shoulder. But actually, I'm loving not being able uh-huh. to brush my hair, and it doesn't look any different than it all.
2: <laughs>
0: the Diva of Magic, she's sort of like some diva, mm-hmm. you know. She probably doesn't brush her hair. She'd have someone to do it for her. You know, she, I don't e- ever go to a hairdresser. She would be going in, she'd be in the salon weekly.
1: Ah. Uh-huh.
0: I I haven't looked at my nails recently, but she would be having manicures. You know, it's totally different for
1: because you mentioned that you have nervousness about being on stage, but when you're there, you're in flow. Yeah. Does having that persona remove that nervousness and prepare you? Yes. Because you suddenly switch, I'm into this yeah. This individual. Yeah. This per-
0: and so in the dressing room, I'm, I feel like I'm her roadie. So I take mm. all the stuff to the dressing room, all the cases and everything else. I lay it all out. I'm her roadie, as it were. And then put on the costume and then the makeup goes on. And then once I put on the eyelashes, she sort of becomes, and then Mm. she's there. And then she looks at herself in the mirror and she's like, yes, yes, that's marvelous. Look at that. Aren't I beautiful? (laughs) You know, which I would never do. I would never look in the mirror and think, aren't I beautiful? But she would. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and suddenly she is there and she's the, she's there to bring love and light. And, she's there to love the audience and the audience will love her and she is marvellous and she knows exactly what she's doing and she thinks very highly of herself not mm-hmm. in a vain way but in a you know she's assessed the situation and she thinks she's very good and and when she's on stage what she says
1: mm-hmm.
0: Is different to how I talk. And, and I can even look at her and go, where did that come from? Well, the, like, the,
1: I watched you with Penn and Teller and Jonathan Ross mm. and very mischievous and also sedu- slightly mildly seductive yeah. approach that you deliver mm. your magic with is really something of mesmerising.
0: Thank you, yeah. And you know what, the character's changed from Jonathan and Ross, uh, Jonathan uh-huh. Ross, Penn and Ross, which was, I think, 2011. Mm-hmm. And when I look at that, I quite find it h- quite hard to watch that because the characters changed so much. And I don't particularly like that one there. Uh-huh. A director helped me do that. I had this amazing director called Robert E. Fitch, who uh-huh. was a, a, a famous actor in New York for many years. He's now 83. And, and he would say, for example, if you've got a dial... If you got, or let's say a, a, a dial where on naught you've got everyday Romani mm-hmm. and on ten you've got the Diva of magic. You know where do you put? A, you know where? So on Penn and Teller, that that would have been about eight. Uh. And now we've moved it back, so uh. so the character is much more gentle and much more authentic. So it's it's interesting, and this this is an interesting thing about a dial. So for example, I performed at a wedding, I think. And my girlfriend said at the time, she said, wow, you're so sexy on stage. And I was single at the time. And I said, well, I might be sexy on stage, but I can't find a man for love nor money. (laughs) She said, every every man and woman in the audience was in love with you. And I said, well, they're not in love with me off stage. And I thought, oh. She said, why don't you try being more of the character? And so in my head, I put my little dial on seven. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I got really flirted with that evening. I remember I had to sort of get rid of a guy because he wanted to take me home to his room, and I thought that's interesting, you know, because Mm. we can all we can all be different characters. You know, who we are at home is not the same as who we are in the office.
1: Mm -hmm. That's very true. Mm. That's. uh, Do you touch on that in your book?
0: I don't really know. No, I don't. That Uh, must be another book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because it feels like there's. It's a coaching. You know, it's bringing in performance, acting, preparation, yeah. training. Yeah, there's something in that that's really interesting.
0: I mean, I do talk, I mean, i, I got lots of lessons in my book. For for example, you know, a, a great teacher in, in Hollywood, Max Maven, said to me, before you come on stage, you have to know who are you?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What are you telling me? Why yeah. should I care? You know, so you need to know your motivation. And he taught me that. And I do know that. And so I, I do bring that into the book. Mm-hmm. but it's funny because in the book club they said why didn't you talk more about your gigs and about magic in the book and I, and I thought well I suppose it's my job and actually I'm much more interested in real magic I'm much more interested in, the, in, in how the impossible becomes possible strange things happen how when you listen you get information and what happens when you follow that information I'm much more interested in that than I am at tricks.
1: Going back to that having that ferocious commitment to as you I think you just, you, you remind me you described again watch me I can and I will and watch me was that there right at the start when you said this is what I'm going to do I'm um, going to become I, I a magician have
0: that motto but I had that determination
1: that it, spirit was in you
0: I was really angry at, at the state I'd ended up in by not following my dream and therefore when my father when I you know I wasn't earning any money anymore you know because you don't earn any money when you first start out trying to be a magician or an actor or whatever, and he said, "Well, why don't you get a bar job and i in my I don't know whether I said it or i I thought I didn't give up a very well paid corporate job to waste my time on a bar job. It's mm-hmm. like I'm going to put a thousand percent in this until I earn some money, and money wasn't wasn't the motivation. the motivation was always to have a good show.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That was the motivation. And, and and again in in my speaking gigs i i say at that point i say i was 26 when i gave up my corporate job and i was 43 when i won the las vegas world magic awards
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is 17 years of trying to get a good act it took that long
1: but it's true with everything is everyone thinks when a band break right. there's is just overnight success and it's not you know whether it's from whether it's from the the beatles or to any latest sensation, you know, Yeah, it's that the effort's been put invested in the bank and preparing you.
0: It is that true. I mean, I just listened and really enjoyed an audio book called Green Light by Matthew uh-huh. McConaughey. Oh,
1: I haven't yeah. read it yet. He's wonderful in his He's interviews, wonderful, yeah.
0: And mm-hmm. I highly recommend the audio book which he reads.
1: Oh, love it. That's going to top of my list.
0: Fact, I'm, I think I'm going to listen to it again i listened to it twice over i love it Mm -hmm. and and actually you need to interview him he's because (laughs) he's totally on this wavelength but actually he says he didn't do that he actually got lucky really quick Mm -hmm. (laughs) however what he did do he says that when he was in rom-coms, he was really, really, really successful, earning a bunch of money. But it wasn't what he wanted to be doing. He wanted to be a serious actor. And so he told his agent, don't get me any more films, any more rom-coms. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wait. And the next film he did was The Dallas, Dallas Forest, Forest Club.
1: Club yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And he even got scripts. I'm uh, sorry for a spoiler alert for his book. But, you know, you'll enjoy it. He got scripts for like $10 million. And mm-hmm. then forty million million, he was like, no. And you have to hold out for what you want, and, and then you'll get it.
1: So tell me how you managed to train under Jeff McBride.
0: Jeff McBride, who's for anyone that doesn't for know.
1: Don't know, yeah.
0: Right, he's a mega magician and, and now mega teacher. He has the, the mystery school in Las Vegas. I was, so when I went to the magic class, I fell in love with magic, but, the, not but, and the teacher said, do you want to come with me? to Austria to do a street show and I was like I'd always wanted to be a street <laughs> magician you know a street entertainer in fact it, when I was 21 I taught myself to juggle and became a street entertainer for three months but then of course gave it up to be a corporate and corporate person so I went to this to do a magic show in Austria and along came this juggler with tie-dye and long hair and I fell in love with him and married him and so I then ended up in Germany as a street performer and so we went around the world doing this knife-throwing show, which if you put in Cobble Comedy Company into YouTube, you can see me juggling fire and standing on his shoulders. And I would have been 27 at that time. Okay. So we were going around the world, um, not earning any money. Well, we were earning money, but just enough to eat pizza and, you know, <laughs> just get by. And in L.A., I went to a Women in Magic convention which was there were so few women in magic that there was like 15 people Mm
2: -hmm, and
0: mm -hmm. someone said the name jeff mcbride and i kid you not my whole body went my hair stood up on my body i had no idea who jeff mcbride was the hair stood up on my arms and i wrote in big letters in red pen i had a few color pens go see jeff mcbride it was a thing i didn't know who jeff mcbride was i just had a thing So when I got back to Germany, I discovered that Jeff McBride had a mystery school two-week thing, I think, in Santa Barbara. Mm. I had no money. I don't know how I got the £1,000 together to get out there. And I signed up for this and took my rucksack and, as you'll read in the Mm. book, ended up sleeping in a garage and hitchhiking my way to go to this mystery school thing in Santa Barbara. And Mm -hmm. that's where I really... Started my learning process,
1: Uh and that's when you dropped the juggling and the fire eating and Well, I,
0: you know, I carried on doing that because I was Mm -hmm. married to a juggler, and I didn't have an act yet. You see, Mm -hmm. that was the thing. It took me a long time to get an act because this was this was just before the internet. This was in dial-up email time, (laughs) right? For the people of that age, and I had no way of learning magic, and so it just took me a long time. Plus. I went around it the wrong way. Any magician will know that there's classics of magic. They're in Mm -hmm. books and classics of magic, which are, you know, tricks that you'll know, rings, ropes, they work. Mm -hmm. I was trying to reinvent the wheel with amazing ideas of pulling a glass ball from the air and then turning it into a ball with a goldfish in it and stuff you can't do. Mm -hmm. But... I don't regret that because that became a book <laughs> of how failures, how I had many, many years of failures. And as we know, failures are much more interesting than successes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kept going back to see Jeff and, and learning magic.
1: So what did he, he see fine. in you? Because obviously there was um, something.
0: Well, you know what? Jeff is really encouraging to everybody. And Jeff uh-huh. is really encouraging to women. So, so finally, there was a lot of women in his magic school. And and a lot of support. It was very supportive. It wasn't competitive. Magicians are usually very secretive. Not now, because everything's for money. If you mm. pay money, you can learn anything. But In the old days, it used to be that you can only learn something if someone lets you into the magic secret. And it used to be passed down from, like, father to son or father to nephew. But Jeff was very open to women and very supportive. But that's not to say... I, I actually feel very proud because I invented magic that i do and the reason for that is that magic was a very male thing yeah so if you look in any magic books if you want to produce make an egg appear out of nowhere there'll be 20 methods but they'll all be for men out of male clothing trousers waistcoats top hats jackets Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and first of all i got myself a male outfit and then i thought hold on I'm i'm a woman and i wanted to look like a show girl as uh-huh. I always wanted to be a sugar. Yeah. So you can see that this is my costume. You can see I've got a portrait behind me.
1: Yeah. A uh-huh.
0: costume. So I wanted to do magic. Those legs are longer than my legs. That was a very fascinating <laughs> portrait by my designer. You know, he did that, you know, whether you write. Um, so I had to reinvent the wheel. So I had to take a trick that a, male, that a male magician would do out of his pockets or waistcoats or tailcoat and make it out of my costume. And that took mm. a long time.
1: Wow, that is something that struck me. I never really thought about it before. You know, I I sat and thought, have I ever watched a female magician? I've be, you know, I've seen magicians in in bars, and wow, that is something that struck me. I never really thought about it before. You know, I I sat and thought, have I ever watched a female magician? I've be, you know, I've seen magicians in in bars and. <clears throat> In in shows I've been to at the Edinburgh Festival or here in New York or like there's a guy I interviewed for another podcast to do called Josh Beckerman the foodie magician mm. and you know I thought there, I haven't mm. it is a very male dominated profession
0: it's it is but however and, and maybe maybe the women aren't as good as marketing or maybe they got rewritten out of history for example you have amazing magician you have Belinda Sinclair in New York who is an amazing...
1: Need to check her out now.
0: Right? And she okay. has her own show in her own flat uh-huh. in New York, and she's, like, highly qualified, skilled theatrical magician. She's a bit older than me, a beautiful woman with long hair, crazy talented, uh-huh. and there's many other such ones. But I hadn't heard of them either. I had never seen a female magician either and yet they have been all through history Mm -hmm. but you know have they been written out have them you know did the male magicians not want to sing the praises of female magicians i don't know Mm
2: -hmm.
0: but and certainly there are many now and especially in china and and japan many talented female magicians in vegas all over Mm -hmm. the world
1: so how do you go about creating new magic sort of moments when there's been so much done in the past, like you said, pulling an egg out there is 20 different ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this standard stock and trade that you probably need to be able to learn to be able to move to the next level. But when you sit and start to think, right, I'm going to create a new bit of magic, where does Mm -hmm. it come from?
0: Thing is, so again... I had these visions of act. For example, one vision and if you read the book it's in there but you know I you've got a French maid. She's like duh, 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 and she you know she goes to clean her the apartment of some New York and this is like 1950s sort of thing mm. and this is very sort of like film it. And she goes in and on the dressing table there's this hookah pipe with pink smoke coming out and she's like huh. Mm-hmm. And she has a little has a little intake and they go. Mmm. And then a pink <laughs> ball comes out of her mouth and she's like, oh. She puts it down. And then she goes back to her cleaning and then she thinks, hmm, I'll have a little, very much the Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, that lovely Disney yeah. cartoon. Uh-huh. And then she has another puff. And then, she goes, and then something else happens. And, you know, and so I had this mu- a beautiful idea for this act. And I spent a year trying to do it before I realised it's impossible. <laughs> so if I, it's not impossible, but you would need a huge budget behind you. For example, mm-hmm. Port Keeve is the guy, a friend of mine, who does the magic for all the West End musicals. Mm-hmm. You know, for Mary Poppins. When she pulls a broom out of her handbag, that's Paul Keeve. Mm-hmm. When and The Invisible Man was a show, and I don't know, he created The Invisible Man. When you want someone to walk through a mirror, he's the guy that does that. He is very expensive. My ambition for most of my magical life was to be able to afford Paul Keeve. Mm-hmm. And I never, I never got there. You know, David Copperfield would hire Paul Keeve. So in order to do, in order to change my vision into a real show, I tried uh-huh. and I, I failed. So, but what you can do is the classics of magic are things that work, the rings, for example. Uh-huh. So what I did then was I then took those classics of magic and, and, and created a background for them. It's a bit like taking the jazz standards. So uh-huh. you take a song and then you do it in your style. And that's what I do with magic. So, for example, I take a trick that I love, that uh-huh. maybe other people do, and then I write a script around it and a concept for it and do it in my style.
1: Wow. And what's the process, the timeline for something like this? I mean, it, is it something you 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 say every year, I need to create a new repertoire or... how how does it work
0: (laughs) well you know what, everyone's different and some some people do do that but i learned early on there was a a famous magician called david devant and apparently when a young magician said to him i can do 104 tricks how many can you do and he said i do six Mm
2: -hmm.
0: but i do them very well right and i went yeah and the other thing is they what's the phrase an amateur Changes his tricks, and mm-hmm. the professional changes his audience. Hmm. My ambition was to have my tricks perfectly or as best I can scripted, finished to the polished to the best degree and The other thing was so when I first started magic, I was in Germany, and every four years there's a, there used to be the Olympics of magic called phism, which is mm-hmm. Fédération Internationale Société de Magique, whatever. And it was going to be in Dresden. And I wrote to the organisers and said, um, can I come and work for you and get a free convention? Because I didn't have any money. And and I will translate for you because I can speak languages. And they said, yes, you can. So there I was. And my job, I had a, a blue waistcoat on. And my job was to stand, keep the door shut before lectures and make sure the queue was in order And then open the door so that all the magicians could rush in and sit in the lecture hall. And there's like 6,000 magicians. But I didn't. I opened the door. Then before the 6,000 magicians could rush in, I rushed in, took off my waistcoat and sat in the front (laughs) seat. (laughs) So that meant that I saw the best magicians in the world. And this was in the very first year of my learning magic. And I always remember one of the best magicians in the world called David Williamson, who's an amazing comic genius. People, he's not famous in the real world, but he's a hero of magicians. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And he said, imagine what Michael Jackson or Madonna or Barbara Streisand would do if they had a magic trick. They would take one trick and they would make it the best they could. You know, so take out one trick and, you know, make it the best, put it in the best box, tie the best bow around it and then present it to the world. And I really learned that. And so I, I haven't got a very big repertoire, but every trick that I have got is absolutely scripted. The props are the best that I could make. And I've done my best to make it finished.
1: What's the difference between mentalism and magicians? Okay, or is, so, it, or is, it, is it the same thing?
0: No. Mentalism is a branch of magic. A
1: mm-hmm. bit
0: like, you know, you might say music is a branch. Blues is a branch yeah. of music. So... Mentalism is when I say, um, write something down on a piece of paper and now tear that piece of paper up, and were you thinking of a dog? And you're like, I was thinking of a dog. Oh, so that sort of thing. Or you're, I want, you think of a number, you think of a number, you think of a number, and then I reveal that here are all the numbers that you thought of. Because so this
1: is what this guy Beckerman did with me. In, I was the producer of this other podcast, and he pulled me into it, and he said, right, think of a restaurant in New York, he got it. How on earth did he get it?
0: I, I can't tell you that. <laughs> oh. But um, that, That's what mentalism is. So it's when it's usually about thought. You know, you think of something, I will tell you what you're thinking. But, you know, my, my favourite thing is, so is I was invited, a millionaire or billionaire, whatever, loved mentalism. And he has an island. And so he invited the 10 top mentalists of the world and paid mm. for them to come to his island, and they invited me, and I'm not a mentalist, but I think I was the only girl and they wanted me along. Mm-hmm. And so I went along to this thing, and I'm not kidding you, we all had to do a show, and all weekend, what the mentalist kept saying is, what time is that show? Where have we got to go? What's the name of that woman again? <laughs> so, so, yes, they, so yes they, can, they know what you're thinking, but they, they, they can't remember what time the show is. or
1: Wow. <laughs> because hilarious. It's,
0: it's, it's, a, it's a magic show you know? <sighs> it's
1: I, worth I mean, learning magic just learn how they do that right
0: and the other thing that my friend who's a brilliant mentalist look up mark paul as an m-a-r-c mm-hmm. Paul. you can probably see him on youtube he's a okay. lovely guy a friend of mine and a brilliant mentalist and he's also a ship entertainer and he would say that it's the worst thing being a mentalist on the ship because he'd be in the lift with his cup of tea and he'd be in the lift, minding his own business. He's not on stage. And the guy in the lift would have seen his show. And then he'd be like, go on, what am I thinking? What am I thinking? Go on, what, what's <laughs> in my tea or coffee? And he'd actually be asleep on a sun lounger. And people would shake his foot and go, what am I thinking? What am I thinking? <laughs>
1: oh, you know. hell. Yeah. Okay. All right. So y- you have had extraordinary, considering, like you said, you went from 26 to, was it 42? When you, 43 when I won the... For, 43. Considerable sort of success. As a member of Magic Circle, you're Magician of the Year. You've performed for the Queen. I've seen shots of you, Prince Charles. Mm-hmm. You've performed in Hollywood and Vegas. you mentioned the Penn and Teller sort of thing mm-hmm. in 2011. And this might take us back to where what you were saying what, as to where you are right now, opening mm-hmm. your mind to this universal force mm-hmm. as to... How do you continue to evolve, and where do you think you're going to go? Where do you really want to be when we maybe hit 2030?
0: Well, I've, I'm finding this so intriguing at the moment. Mm. I'm literally sitting in my garden, staring into space, thinking about this for, de- and I have been since COVID hit. Uh-huh. So in my life, basically, I wrote the book when I was 50 years old. I'm now 52, and that just came out of the blue. I was having a. a, a session with a life coach mm-hmm. and I was moaning about having to practice magic while all my friends were on the beach
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and he said he said if you weren't having to practice magic what would you rather be doing and out of my mouth came the words I'd rather be writing I'd like to get up in the morning and write all day and I had not I hadn't thought about this I, I had no I had no knowledge that that's what I wanted and mm-hmm. this was brings us back to what we were saying first of all
1: take you back to english as well your love of right yeah my love
0: of english but this is where suddenly you're writing your morning pages and suddenly you say i want to be a gardener or i want to have a dog or things you didn't know you wanted where did that come from yeah and i was like and he said well what's stopping you and i said well no one no one wants to pay me for writing no one's interested in what i'm writing and he said how do you know and then i sort of shut him down and that's when I got on my bicycle to get some vegetables. And I rode past WH Smith's, which is a shop. <laughs> and in the shop was this book called Big Magic. And it's very brightly colored. And I'm a magician. And I saw this book. And it, again, like the Jeff McBride thing, it called to me. It mm. went by me. <laughs> so I didn't know it was about magic. I didn't know what it was about. I went in. I bought it. I bought my vegetables. I went back. I opened the book. I started reading. I didn't stop till 2 in the morning till I read the whole book which was absolutely what I needed to read in that moment, I started writing my book in the morning and mm-hmm. I didn't stop for, oh, I don't know, four months until I'd written 82,000 words. I wow. didn't stop. I got up in the morning and more than that, at four o'clock in the morning, I would get woken up seriously by a little voice that went, come on, come downstairs and write. And I'm like, it's four o'clock in the morning. And they're like, come on, it will be fun. Come on. I'm kidding you not, and and not only I say this, but other people that have done similar things say the same mm-hmm. thing. You get a little voice. Who it is? It's you. Who cares? Uh-huh. And I and I loved it. I was in deep joy. I was. I had the only thing wrong in my life was that I got a really numb bum by sitting mm-hmm. 10 <laughs> hours a day. It flew out of me. Why does this happen? I don't know. Anyway, so so I published the book. Da da da, and. There's a whole adventure with a writer called Elizabeth Gilbert.
2: Mm. So
0: so I forgot to mention, it's her book, Big Magic. (laughs) So it's her book, Big Magic. It's Uh. excellent. Everyone should read it. And basically she says, if you have any inspiration, do it. You're not too old. You're not too fat. It's not too late. Do it because Hmm. we have a divine inspiration coming through us and it needs to come through us and we should be in service to it. So she had influenced me on that. And I had this other moment where I was in Germany. I'd nearly finished the book, writing the book or rewriting it. And I'd done a show in Germany for 2,000 people, which was great. You had to stop and wait for the laughter to travel backwards the sound travels. But the trouble was I got back to my hotel room and I still was bulimic. And it was three o'clock in the morning and I was at my wit's end. I was really at my wit's end. I didn't know what to do and i turned on her podcast magic lessons which is also excellent everyone should listen to it and that and this is what i mean about serendipity like there you get help you just have to listen and this particular lesson she what happens in magic lessons the podcast people write in with their artistic problems and she gets someone that's a success on to coach them and my thing was I I literally said, what if I never shake this iron hook that has me wriggling? What if I never get rid of bulimia? I've had it for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And in this podcast, ballerina wrote in. She was a 60-year-old ballerina and she said, I want to teach dancing, but I'm now 60 and I don't feel that my body is a dancer's body anymore. What can I do? And Liz Gilbert said, okay, I'm going to invite on Amy Purdy's Amy Purdy's, as many Americans will know, is the woman who was on Dancing with the Stars. Amy Purdy's is a double gold Paralympics winner. Amy Purdy's, when she was a teenager, had meningitis and had her Mm -hmm. legs amputated beneath the knee. But after that, after sort of staying in bed for a long while, she got up, she invented legs for herself, And then she became a a double gold Paralympic. So so Liz Gilbert invited her on. And I listened to Amy Purdy's talk about this. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if Amy Purdy's, who doesn't have the body that she wants, then if she can do that, then I can continue being a magician, even though it's very difficult for me to continue. Mm -hmm. Wow. And. And so I was deeply, deeply grateful to Liz Gilbert for, A, inspiring me to write the book and then helping me through that night. So I wanted to give Liz Gilbert a gift. Liz, Liz's wife at that time had cancer. And so I wanted to say to Liz, you're a teacher of writing. You inspired me to write the book and I finished this book. And so I wanted to give Liz the book. And so I got back to writing it with the deadline give it to her at a workshop huh. and that was my deadline but what happened then was then you know Liz's wife died and so she cancelled the workshop huh. I was going to. Uh. and I'd finished the book in time and I was like oh <laughs> but then I thought hold on the the workshop is postponed for six months in six months I can get this book published and then give it to her as a proper book yeah so that was my new deadline so huh. I, I worked really hard but then I found out that this new workshop was in london and i was on a cruise ship like, oh. but then i found out the cruise ship would would dock in bristol that day <laughs> just three hours away from this workshop so i was like okay this is really dangerous i'm gonna have the show that night and you really shouldn't go for a long walk let alone uh, get off the cruise ship and go to work get on london.
1: a train to london
0: but it seemed to me to be really really important and this is what you have to listen to your intuition it didn't make any sense But it seemed to me to be imperative that I thank Liz with this book. And so I had this vision of giving Liz this book wrapped up with gold swirls and golden balloons. I thought she'd like that. So I jumped off the cruise ship. I had my book. I wore a golden cat suit, and I blew up all these golden balloons on the train, which is very difficult because as you blow up the balloons, they start drifting down the Mm. carriage. And I wanted—I had like 50 balloons to give her and I, I only got 15 because it was really stressful. And and then I got out of the carriage, uh, the train, and it was very difficult to get in a taxi with all these balloons. And when I got to the workshop, it was already two o'clock in the afternoon because it took three hours to get from Bristol and £300. And the woman on the door said, you can't go in with these balloons and this golden katsu and this book. I can't let you in, which you can understand. Mm-hmm, yeah. And what I hadn't realised was this, this workshop now had a thousand people in it. Now I did realise that on the train because my friends who were in it, sent <sighs> me, and I was like, "What am I going to? I can't do this, but I have to do mm. this. I have to do this." And so this woman on the door said, "You have to put the book and the balloons down on the floor in the in the dust." And by this time, I'm crying. I'm I'm 52 years old, but I'm crying because I'm so disappointed. Mm. And so, what am I going to do? But I've got a ticket for the workshop. And I said, well, I can go in. And she went, all right. So I went in, stood in the... It's a big university lecture
2: mm-hmm.
0: workshop. Everyone's very serious. Liz is down the front teaching. And I stood in the back and thought, you know what? I gave it my best shot. It didn't work. I've been wanting to do this for a year. and I gave it my best shot. But hey, I'm going to have to go back to the, do my show on the ship. At which point, Liz Gilbert starts talking about persistence Uh she says whenever you have a dream or an artistic Mm -hmm. goal the thing that is going to get you there is persistence and seriously my heart starts beating (laughs)
2: because
0: I'm like she's right and then I think I've got to do this and I've got another unsigned book in my handbag and I thought I've Mm -hmm. got I've got to get it to her at which point she says to everybody take out your notebooks and write a letter to yourself about what you're going to be persistent about Mm-hmm. At which point a thousand people they're all women, women, reach down to their handbags and take out their notebooks and start writing, and everyone's got their head bent, and so has Liz because she's writing a letter mm-hmm. to herself and I'm a magician and I know a moment of misdirection when I see one, and I am so terrified, it's like being the most terrifying thing i I don't like breaking rules, and I get my book and I start to creep in my golden cat suit down the front, and no one sees me i'm so scared and i put the book on the front of the stage and liz doesn't see me because she's writing Mm -hmm. and then i don't know what to do and i just turn around and sprint up the stairs out of the theater and no one sees me do that and then i sprint out of the thing getting in a taxi i said to the taxi driver that was the scariest thing i've ever done and the taxi driver says what did you do love Mm
2: -hmm. and i
0: tell him the story and he says well if she was talking about talking about persistence she can't bloody complain if you did (laughs) And i thought yeah and then i thought it's not about Liz. It's not about the book, mm. about her reading the book. She just gave me the word yeah. to get the book out into the world. Persistence. Mm. Anyway, I get back to the ship. I do a show. I tell the audience all about my adventure. And I give up on the getting, you know, I, Liz, I never hear from her. I, I, she hasn't read the book. She hasn't seen the book. I never hear from her. But a year, this is what I mean about how magic mm. works even when you give up magic doesn't it still keeps ticking along because I'm on LinkedIn and I see an advert for a retreat in Fiji where Liz Gilbert is a VIP speaker and I don't think anything I literally say oh that's amazing this is amazing and the organizer says yes why don't you come and I say well would you like to hire a magician and she looks me up she probably thinks who. So. She looks me up and she says, oh, I'm impressed. And then I tell her my Liz Gilbert story and said, wouldn't it be amazing if an edition that was inspired by Big Magic, the book, to write a story about Big Magic and about never giving up? Well, halfway around the world to Fiji to do a show and then a talk about how never giving up absolutely works and gives up her book to Liz. Wouldn't that be amazing? And she said, yes, it would. And so in February 2020, that's exactly what happened. And I, I gave my talk. And at the end of my talk, I got out all these golden balloons that I had blown up. And I said, Liz Gilbert, will you please come get this book? And she ran up to the stage with everybody, 150 people cheering. And she got down on her knees and, and did the bowing thing. And wow. The book and Incredible. Everybody, that's how you do it. And everyone
1: was in tears. What a story.
0: Yeah. And then what happened was that COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And my work for the entire year was Mm cancelled. And I couldn't afford to live in my house in Brighton. So I ended up coming to this tiny village in the Lake District. And now, and the other thing that happened was I saw a picture of a starving dog Mm -hmm. on my friend's Facebook. She was raising money for it. And again, my, ish, my intuition said, that's your dog. Bang. Absolutely certain, like the Jeff McBride thing, like the Liz Gilbert thing, mm-hmm. that's your dog. So I said, okay, I will raise money for this dog. And then, then I thought, hold on, let's make magic happen. This dog was starving in Bulgaria. Skin and bone, I've got the picture mm-hmm. of it. Not only that, the villagers wanted to shoot it because they said it was dangerous. I thought, what if I invite everybody to be fairy dog parents? Give me 20 quid
2: mm-hmm.
0: and we can all make this happen. And within 10 days, we had a thousand quid. And so that paid, so she got, she went from being starving to being a healthy dog.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then she got caught in Bulgaria because of COVID and uh-huh. Brexit. And then a journalist found up and it got into the Daily Mirror with this story of let's mm-hmm. make this happen, let's bring this dog to the UK so that she can live with me. Happy, <laughs> and we raised in a night three thousand five hundred quid pounds. And I have that dog. She's not barking downstairs. Mm-hmm. And the dog is thirty kilos. She's not very well. Tra- She's untrained. Uh-huh. <laughs> she barks at everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got some training issues to do. But she is there. And what's more is, I'm going to do a show with her. When she's trained to show everybody that you can be at death's door and things can change and nothing is impossible. Now, to bring you back to this, I have not done magic. And since that show with Liz Gilbert, I've had no interest in magic whatsoever. Now, when I listen, I get the instruction train the dog, make this cottage a beautiful refuge, right? Sanctuary. And when I wasn't listening, like in my book, when I I got hit by a car, I went to circus school and I got hit by a car and with a mass of broken bones, that's what made me go to to learn magic. And whenever I was on the wrong track, I'd get a message. Well, last week with her in a field, she set off after some rabbits attached to me (laughs) and I flew through the air and cracked. Your shoulder. and broke my shoulder. It doesn't hurt, actually, but, uh, but I can't actually do much. I yeah. certainly can't, can't be a magician if... And it's train the dog, write her story, which is a children's book, which is Rouge Inspires the World,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is to tell everybody, in especially these times where things seem hard, believe and transformation can happen and you are the magician of your own life.
1: Now, that's what,
0: that's what I'm going to do.
1: That's a wonderful story.
0: It is. And That's, the broken and, shoulder is giving me permission because I was feeling uh-huh. really guilty about not doing gigs. It's like, hold on, you spent, your, you spent 30 years creating a show that was your dream. Uh-huh. Why don't you want to do it? You should be doing it. And I didn't want to do it. And now I've got a broken shoulder I don't have to do it anymore <laughs> because I'm not meant to be doing that anymore. That was then.
1: Yeah, but it was. It was so it's, just it. All, it's all part of the journey.
0: It's part of the journey.
1: It prepared you to write the book that prepared you to, to create this new book. Yeah, you wouldn't and be able what's to be. Really
0: important to me now. We come back to the beginning. What's really important to me now is especially young people when they're desperate and they haven't got the the benefit of hindsight. When you're fifty, you can go, God, I was so mm. unhappy, but I needn't have been, and I can teach people that. And that's mm. what I want to do now. Wonderful. Yeah.
1: Well, I can't wait to see what's next. Well,
0: I, can I say, Mark? I mm. I, I was I when lockdown happened I was like what am I meant to be doing and I thought okay I'm going to find a million readers, I'm going to set myself a challenge of finding a million readers for my book, *Spun to go the secret life of a female magician, mm-hmm. a million because it's like an impossible number so I want to prove that the impossible is possible mm-hmm. and, fun. and then so I did a blog and I worked really hard and I was you know doing quite well and then I fell off the wagon and I couldn't be bothered anymore and maybe for the last three months I haven't promoted it at all <laughs> And then this morning, when I was so aware of hmm. what's going on in the world, I and I was like, it's almost as if everyone's got a chip of ice in their hearts. It's hard. And I had this vision of what if I could put a chip of joy and gold in their hearts? And what if the book was the chip of gold? Now, I'm not bothered by money myself, and I'm not bothered really by success. So I don't really care about the book, but I do care about putting a chip of joy and gold in everyone's hearts. So that has given me the motivation again to promote the book. Because so it's like, oh, mm-hmm. that would be great. If this book can cheer everyone up and yeah. teach them about magic, then I'll get back to work. Yeah, that's my motivation.
1: Uh-huh. Wow. Incredible. Well, it, I, I have absolutely no doubt that magic yeah. is going to happen. Definitely. And that. That joy you will be... You have
0: to listen. You have to listen for it.
1: Okay. Can we finish with a quick fire questions? Okay. <laughs> yeah? Okay. Yeah. What principles do you stand by? Be kind. Be kind. Mm-hmm.
0: doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. Especially if you're right. Be kind. Yeah. Yeah? Being right isn't important.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Be kind. And see... The divinity in everybody Mm
2: -hmm.
0: even though if if they're as annoying like I haven't got a great love for our Prime Minister okay (laughs) at all or anything he's doing but let me go to the soul in him and love that Uh
1: alright that's good words of wisdom for following a good life Um, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been really tough at the time but okay, it did so turn I'll, out to be good.
0: Yeah, sorry, I interrupted your question then. Do you mm-hmm. want
1: to ask it again? No, no, just go ahead. hard, Yeah, the hard yeah, choices. You, hard might hard have, hard. you might have actually answered it through the, the interview.
0: The biggest, hardest choice. I heard three times, leave your husband, sell your house, go to Las Vegas. I mean, sell your house, go to Las Vegas. That sounds this, quite fun. This the was the juggler. Has, this is a juggler who I was in love with and loved three times. And I did leave him. It was awful. Again, you can read about that in the book. It was awful. It was a heartbreak. You know, absolutely. I felt as if I had a knife in my heart. It was awful. Mm-hmm. And it was the right thing to do. I spoke to him two days ago. <laughs> it was the right thing. Absolutely the right thing to do. We we're great friends. It was 100% the right thing to do. It was awful at the time.
1: Where's he now?
0: He's in Germany. Uh-huh. Doing st- shows and actually campaigning for truth and uh-huh. justice.
1: Yeah. Wow. OK, when you've been doing your magic, I, know, you sort of, I suppose we touched on this when you for new ideas, you open up your mind to that universal, these universal forces. But is there any sort of specific thing that you do or where do you go when you are trying to tap into something to come up with new yeah. ideas, a new direction?
0: Yeah, I find the best thing to get new ideas is long walks. So mm. I, I had before this dog, I had another dog for 10 years and, you know, walk him every day. And you usually always get ideas on walks. Mm. And actually, Julia Cameron in The Artist's Way says that, you know, she, when when people want to be inspired, she, she, she gets you to go on an hour walk every day. Mm. And
1: it's like Darwin had his thinking path. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. What's the biggest problem worth solving?
0: Hmm. <sighs> How to love. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? How to solve the world's problems if we all acted out of love to each other? Yeah. How, how do we do that? That's mm-hmm. the biggest question.
1: That's a great answer. Yeah, we should have a chat with Boris about that. Oh. <laughs> if you had four people to your, your 16th century small abode in Cumbria to mm-hmm. help you build a better future and plan for what you're doing next, who would those people be?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the first one was Louis, Louise Hay. Uh
1: huh. Um,
0: which many people will know, and who has been helping me. (laughs) Because there's a theory that even the people who have passed, you can still ask them for help. And I asked Louise Hay for help. She's the author of um, You Can Heal Your Life and Mm. basically the the instigator of Hay House Publishing Company. And I think she helps me. Louise Hay. I've forgotten now. Um, Oh, Wayne Dyer, Dr. Wayne Dyer. Mm I adore. Do they have to be dead? No. No. Oh great! Well then, Carolyn Mace. Mm-hmm. They're all development transformational teachers, but I think mm-hmm. they're very wise. And I would have my dance teacher, Miss Muriel.
1: Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Who makes you reevaluate yourself, or what?
0: Um, I would say reading. I usually read transformational books, or like this, the wisdom of, and these books make me reevaluate myself i'm reading a book at the moment called the buddhist millionaire by matt Mm. jardine and those sort of questions where they you know they they tell you the exercises again you know get out a piece of paper and write down where you are now Mm. and and then write down what you'd really like to happen you know these these books
1: okay that probably ties into the next question then your advice to someone that has been told forget it you'll never achieve what you set out to your ambition what would your advice be to them
0: I'd say so. Get, get. I, I really like affirmations on the wall. You know, so buy, buy it or paint it. Get yourself the motto "I can" and "I will." Mm-hmm. Watch me. Yeah. And then I also had a great decal in my last house, which I will buy again. Which is always expect something wonderful to happen. So surround you. A surround yourself with positive people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One of Julia do do the artist way by Julia Cameron. Yeah. Brilliant. She said in it which I always remembered, surround yourself with believing mirrors. Mm-hmm. This is people that if you say, I'm going to learn to do gardening, I'm going to be a truck driver, people don't go, no, you can't do that. They go, oh, that you'll be great at that. Yeah, I can see you as a truck driver. So surround yourself with believing mirrors, surround yourself with positive people. And one thing that I did in my 30s, which is a great exercise, is I have a standard that unless I'm delighted when you call or ring up or knock, you're I, I don't meet you yeah not in my life in my 30s I had a few people that when they called I was like oh no it's her and mm. I went and went through my dress book and went so surround yourself with only things you're delighted by
1: that's good that's great advice I mean I could certainly apply that to some people I have i right. invited around to dinner
0: right not, life's too short yeah obviously be kind be loving oh and the other thing is a Liz, Liz Gilbert um quote she said I really like it obviously we we, we want to love everybody there's no reason not to but we can decide at what distance we can love them at (sighs) right so there's a couple of people that i can only love at a very long distance away and be aware at what distance you can love people at some friends they can come and stay for a week some friends Mm. a dinner party other friends you know a phone call once a year
1: no, oh, that's really good advice. Last few questions. A karaoke song that you would do coming out of lockdown? Though I bet there aren't any karaoke bars in Cumbria.
0: No, I don't well, I don't know. There's not much in Cumbria. All you can do in Cumbria is walk up down hills. The last karaoke I was at, I hid under the table <laughs> because I cannot bear. It's a typical performer thing. It's like I don't want to perform when I'm not performing. And I, I can't sing either. And not that you need to sing to do karaoke, but I literally hid under the table mm. to avoid it.
1: Okay. You'd be hiding under the table if I was doing it. Best a series film, a movie that someone might not have seen that you think they should.
0: Well, you know something. I've been catching up on things that everyone else has. So, what I would recommend at the moment is make sure you've seen The Hunger Games, mm-hmm. The Matrix. Yeah. Which are like, you know, who, who wrote those, but they're really spot on, especially mm-hmm. for these times.
1: Yeah, The Matrix, definitely. What book? Would you like us to offer people that come up with good comments on okay, Instagram well, or on the website?
0: Right. I well, a mine.
1: It's yeah, of, cor- of course. Of course, I, as- I should have I was- said aside from yours.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, this is one I'm really loving at the moment, and it's mm-hmm. called "The Wisdom of Florence Scoville Shin." Mm-hmm. I can never remember. I always yes, thought of Florence it. Thingy Thingy. Written in 1925. Yeah. it's stuff that i've been learning and putting into practice my whole life but it's reaffirming it and i love the mm-hmm. fact that 1925, you know
1: it's i'm definitely really gonna fun. be re- reading that myself that's yeah. a quick question it's,
0: it's, sorry and if you um just put it into practice and your life will be ma- magical
1: and a quick question on your book is it uh audiobook yet yes excellent yeah. that's yeah. going in. yeah so it's Audible. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah good all right and then final question, who should we interview next?
0: I've got a, say, I've got a dangerous option or a controversial option <laughs> and a non-controversial option. My, but you know when you said intuition. So when yeah. I asked myself, and the first person was um, a woman called Anna Breeze, B-R-E-E-S, okay. Anna Breeze. Um, go with that. It just came straight into my head, which I believe is the right thing. B-R-E-E-S.
1: OK, and who is she?
0: So she was a BBC journalist.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And now she is covering what's not being covered. So she is, there's enormous censorship at the moment mm-hmm. on all platforms, on the BBC. And so she is interviewing many people, many scientists, doctors, and and she's like a lone voice trying to get things uncensored.
1: OK. And Wait, very that's... brave, very brave. And I- that case, that has to happen. Yeah, I. Okay.
0: So, so have my head. But I'm going to put another plug in for my this book I'm reading at the moment, and I'm going to be on his podcast, and I'm loving his book. Mm-hmm. It, it's Matt Jardine, so this could be another person, mm-hmm. and it's called The Billionaire. Oh yeah. Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. what is it called the Buddhist millionaire? Oh,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've had two recommendations or three recommendations in the past. So if you once yeah. this is live, we always ask you to share it with the people and say you're my recommendation, yeah. and then connect us.
0: Yeah, that's cool. so exciting. I can't. I so hope you have a, a interesting interesting mm-hmm. time with Anna because she's I'm sure a trailblazer at the moment and so courageous. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, thank you. It's been wonderful. I expected it to be a really interesting interview and it has been fascinating. And just thank you and acknowledge you. I think your pursuit and your spirit of pursuing the possible Mm -hmm. is inspiring to people. I think the the words that you've shared are are certainly going to have an impact on people that hear them. And for your just unrelenting persistence, again, an uplifting and an affirmation that if anyone needs stuff affirmation and reassurance that persistence pays off then you are it and for your book and for your you're sharing your chips of joy so we'll do everything we can to to ensure those chips of joy grow
0: I've forgotten to say the thing that I in my talk in Fiji that I Mm. forgot and then I went oh I forgot I forgot I forgot and which is really important which is two years after writing the book where I talk Uh about bulimia and everything else I mean not just about that I am so healthy it's gone it's vanished wow. it's not my life anymore which is the most magic so after all that persistence it's happened and uh-huh. it's amazing and so I I can now when I wrote the book I was I wasn't well and so I what I was saying in the book was you can have a happy life even if you don't manage to defeat your demons but now I can say it is possible
1: uh-huh.
0: which is fantastic
1: I Interviewed a guy yesterday called John Farnham. He calls himself. He's a chief disruptor for the Bogridge Family Foundation. So they were the founder of Cisco Systems set up this foundation. His son and wife run it, and they give away hundreds of millions of dollars to great causes. And they're really looking at the future of education. And he was telling me about how they they take this ancient Indian tradition, one of the Indian native indian tribes of burning sage Mm. to create environments that clean out all Mm. the the negative energies and i'd never heard of that before And it's a bit like you saying when you write a book it's it's as if it's a cathartic clearance Mm. of things Mm. that have been building up Mm. and i think you know the same thing with this there are all these things you can do that that create space for progress and for moving on Mm. But it's. It, I think there's a time and a place for it. So this was well, obviously the time and place for you.
0: Absolutely. And and Brene Brown was a huge influence, uh-huh. Braving the Wilderness. And, and, and she says that when you tell your truth and own your shame and everything uh-huh. else, it's hugely healing, which I think. And what's really weird is that I, I wasn't going to tell anyone. It would have been a secret from everybody for forever. It was a deeply secret thing. Mm-hmm. And then I just went, if I can help one person, then I'm going to do it. And now it's not even a thing. I have no emotional real connection to it. It's not even a thing. All I want is to just help people who are still dealing with it.
1: Brilliant. Very exciting. I look yes. forward to the next chapter.
0: I really enjoyed that. Yeah,
1: no, I really did as well. So thank yeah. you. It was really good fun. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at the Impossible Network or email us at info at And please give our other podcast, the Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.